All right, everybody, welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, which you are now tuned into our OITE review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. And we are now on sports. Now, if you are a returning listener and you listened to our previous episode and you thought, oh, man, this this does not sound like it's in order, uh, and that is because you are correct. We uh, incorrectly uploaded the wrong order of episodes. This will be the, actually the first episode of Upper Extremity and Sports, but I'll leave it up just so you all can still listen and enjoy it, and then we'll listen to it again in a couple episodes down the line. So uh, without further ado, please enjoy this episode on Upper Extremity, and we're doing some sports. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right, everybody, welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are doing the OITE review and kind of continuing on. We've done some trauma and we did a little bit of lower extremity sports. Now we'll get to some upper extremity sports. And um, and, and and we just released, uh, we just started releasing the trauma stuff this week. I mean, by, granted, by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be a couple of months from now. But uh, uh, Spencer, we've gotten a, a good response so far from the trauma review that we started. So uh, I'm glad to that that is the, the response that we're getting. Yeah, let's uh, we'll continue to provide this high yield uh, content here, and uh, hopefully help some people down the road with uh, OITE and eventual uh, ABOS review. Yeah, so let's just go ahead and jump on into it. So, um, starting off, kind of humorous, uh, what artery contributes most of the blood supply of the or to the humeral head? Uh, historically, it was always thought to be the anterior uh, circumflex, but more recent data has uh, kind of switched everything up and now it's the posterior circumflex uh, provides uh, over 75% of the blood flow to the humeral head and mostly to the uh, greater tuberosity while the anterior circumflex uh, is really predominantly just the anterior about 20% 20% of the humeral head and uh, lesser tuberosity. Um, and uh, we didn't really cover this in the uh, trauma talk, uh, although we covered uh, like uh, chromioclavicular joint injuries, but um, what's an os acrom- uh, acromale or whatever? <laughs> Either, uh, we can tell how much uh, Spencer loves sports here. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is actually an uh, an unfused secondary ossification center. You know, all if you kind of go back to you know biology and and how all these bones are formed, you have different ossification centers in different parts of the body. But also, Cramelli is an unfused secondary ossification center, most commonly at the junction of the mesoacromion and the metaacromion. Uh, just a little background, the acromion fuses from anterior to posterior. So you have your preacromion, mesoacromion, metaacromion, and your basiacromion. So uh, most commonly, this is unfused at the junction of the mesoacromion and the metaacromion. Now, I feel like that'll just be a random test question. I don't think anybody in real life is going to ask that. Maybe so, but I feel like that was just going to be, if it shows up, it would just be one of those like, remember this test questions um moving moving forward what are some of the static restraints 
of the shoulder? So the the shoulder uh, statically is uh, restrained by uh, things that are not moving, like uh, muscles and tendons. So like a, the glenoid labrum, which uh, helps provide uh, anterior and posterior restraint. It also increases the depth of the glenohumeral joint. Uh, and then you have the glenohumeral ligaments, which, uh, I mean, examples of which are the superior glenohumeral ligament, the middle glenohumeral ligament, inferior glenohumeral ligament, which has its anterior and posterior components to it. Um, you also have uh, static restraint with the uh, just humeral head sitting within the glenoid labrum uh, and the humeral head retroversion and uh, intraarticular pressure, which is uh, really just created by that joint capsule and the labrum itself and the articular conformity uh, all provide kind of unidirectional limitation to translation, whereas uh, the rotator cuff is what's providing more of that kind of dynamic uh, restraint to the shoulder. Um, and I, I briefly went over some of the glenohumeral ligaments, but uh, if you want to go into more detail about the uh, uh, different ones and their function. Yeah. So, I mean, these glenohumeral ligaments are just are like capsular thickenings that limit excessive humeral head rotation. So just like you said, you have your superior glenohumeral ligaments, your middle glenohumeral ligaments, as well as your inferior glenohumeral ligaments. So our superior glenohumeral ligaments are going to resist inferior translation with the arm adducted. I mean, which like a lot of these, if you just think about it, it would make sense. Like if you pull the arm down, what what's stopping the arm from continuing to go down? It's going to be those superior ligaments. Um, the middle glenohumeral ligaments are going to resist anterior translation with the arm in about 45 degrees of abduction or abduction. And in your inferior glenohumeral ligaments, uh, you have your anterior band and your posterior band. They always ask questions about the anterior band. And the anterior band is going to resist anterior translation at 90 degrees of abduction, as well as external rotation of the arm. So like if you're uh, like holding up a stop sign, for example. Uh, and one way that uh, Dr. Mamaya mentioned or said to think about this in our talk on anterior instability is wherever... If you put your arm wherever your shirt is tight, whatever your arm position is that your shirt is tight in, it's typically the band that's going to be tight. So if you have your arm adducted out to the side and excellently rotated, kind of inferior portion of your shirt's tight. And so that's how you know it's going to be an inferior band. I mean, the anterior band of your IGHL. If you have your arm kind of midway, um, uh, abducted about 45 degrees, that'll be your middle glenohumeral ligaments. And back to our inferior glenohumeral ligaments, we talked about our anterior band, which is going to resist anterior translation at 90 degrees of abduction and external rotation. But you also have your posterior band. These kind of form a little hammock. And this resists posterior inferior translation at 45 degrees of abduction. So this is important in internal rotation. So again, it's just think of it like a little hammock on your inferior glenohumeral ligaments. Anterior band resists anterior translation. And your posterior band is going to resist posterior uh, inferior translation at 45 to 90 degrees of abduction. Speaking of these um, these ligaments, and you know, we talked a little bit about the labrum earlier, and it being one of the static restraints to the shoulder. We know sometimes you can have some anatomical variants. So, what is a Buford complex? A Buford complex, and, and by the way, I like that shirt analogy. I never really thought of it like that, but. Uh... I think that yeah. that's pretty useful. 
But uh, a Buford complex is, like you said, a normal anatomic variant, and uh, it can uh, run some people into uh, kind of a dilemma while they're repairing uh, the uh, detached anterior labrum. But uh, for uh, Buford, it's a absent anterior superior labrum with a thickened slash cord-like uh, MGHL. And I mean, that's that's one of those where as long as you just know the terminology, it's, it's useful, but uh, you don't want to mistake a Buford complex for a, a labral tear because uh, as we'll get into uh, later on, uh, repairing something like that can actually cause an uh, internal rotation contracture because they already had a normal variant and, and you just uh, inadvertently tighten them down. Uh, anteriorly, which can lead to decreased external rotation. Um, and then another uh, anatomic variant is a, a sublabral foramen. What is that? That's just, you know, where the labrum's not attached to the glenoid firmly, like anterior superiorly, it's just not attached to the glenoid firmly. And that's just another thing to know that it's just another variant. And I think how they'll test these, is they'll show you like the arthroscopic images. Most at least most ones I've seen are looking from the posterior portal. So you're looking anteriorly and you'll see like the flat labrum. You'll see, I'm sorry, you see the flat glenoid. You might see some of the labrum rim uh, up top. You may see the biceps coming and attaching on the um, uh, superglenoid part of the labrum. And then you'll just see like empty labrum. And then in front of that, you'll see like a thickened cord. And that's how, you know, it'll be that Buford complex versus this sublabel frame. And you just may see it just, uh, just that anterior superior portion, just uh, not attached, but they may not have symptoms of that. And kind of just continuing on, on these kind of sportsy uh, anatomy questions about the shoulder. Uh, what is the rotator interval and what are its borders? I remember this had me confused for years, uh, but now I'm, I'm still somewhat confused, but I understand it a lot more now, but what is yeah. the rotator interval? Same here. Uh, <laughs> uh... <laughs> The uh, the rotator interval is um, it's kind of just this defined space uh, that's really not filled by a really a distinct structure that we usually know of about the the shoulder, like the rotator cuff or uh, some of the uh, ligaments. I mean, it's it's really just kind of a, a space defined by previous surgeons that's between the anterior border of the supraspinatus and the superior border of the subscap. And for those listening, you'll, you'll start to understand this uh, when you see more or do more shoulder arthroscopy that as you put the camera in the posterior portal and you're looking anteriorly, you'll see the anterior band of the supraspinatus and you'll see the superior portion of the uh, subscap. And anything that falls within those two regions is con considered a rotator interval. The medial border of this is the coracoid and laterally is the transverse humeral ligament, which goes across the uh, bicipital groove. And that's what forms the apex out laterally. Um, there will be questions on this either from attendings or on the OITE slash ABOS uh, about the contents of the rotator interval and uh, what are some of those contents? Yeah, so like you mentioned, you know, we have our cracohumeral or coracohumeral 
uh, ligament is going to be one of the contents. You also have your superior glenohumeral ligament, your biceps tendon, as well as your glenohumeral capsule. So this is just, you know, the contents that are that are like in that area, that that space, just like you talked about uh, between the upper border of the subscap, lower border of the supraspinatus, and then uh, from uh, medial lateral between the coracoid and the transverse humeral ligament. So again, just to repeat, uh, the contents of the rotator interval are going to be the cracohumeral ligament, your superior glenohumeral ligament, your biceps tendon, as well as the glenohumeral capsule. And you previously mentioned a little bit about it earlier um, when we talked about the static restraints of the elbow, the things that kind of stop the unidirectional uh, movement. But what are some of the dynamic restraints of the shoulder? Uh, yes, the, the rotator cuff and other scapular stabilizers uh, that are not necessarily uh, functioning at the glenohumeral joint itself, but uh, obviously the four components of the rotator cuff, the subscap, uh, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor. But then you also have uh, kind of the uh, pec major is also functioning at the proximal humerus, the latissimus dorsi, the teres major, uh, the deltoid coming across from the acromion down to uh, its attachment on the proximal humerus. All of those are going to help stabilize the shoulder within that glenohumeral joint. And then just our, our natural proprioception that comes from the capsule ligaments and musculotendinous structures itself is gonna help tell our brain kind of where the arm is in space and uh, what we need to do uh, from an active standpoint uh, in order to resist those uh, translational or shear forces uh, acting on the shoulder during just activities of daily living, sporting events, or uh, anything else. Um, and then there's uh, talking about the rotator cuff. Um, there's also something called the rotator cable. And this is uh, something that's that confused me early on, still confuses me. All the sports <laughs> stuff confuses me. So, so what is that rotator cable? Yeah, if you would have asked me like a week ago, I still would have no answer for you. Uh, but, you know, after like looking it up, you know, I was looking it up and looking at like three different sites and a couple of different books, I finally have figured out what it could possibly be in my head. But uh, so the rotator cable is just a thickening of the cracohumeral ligament, and it's located at the medial aspect of the rotator crescent. Um which is which is formed by fibers that are going to be perpendicular to the supraspinatus and infraspinatus. So like you have your muscles, you know, your muscles and tendons coming in from medial lateral and then you have this thickening that is perpendicular to those fibers. And then after that, you have your rotator crescent, which I might as well just continue to describe, uh, which is, so the rotator crescent is like a, a thick crescent-shaped um, sheet of rotator cuff compromising the distal infraspinatus and supraspinatus insertions. And this is kind of a relatively avascular area. So you have the rotator crescent, which is, again, those distal parts of those tendons. Then you have the rotator cable, which is, again, oriented perpendicular to these fibers. So there is this thickening oriented uh, perpendicular to those fibers. And the rotator cable functions to kind of transmit forces across the rotator cuff complex. Now, if you Google rotator cable, everything that at least maybe at least 60 or to 80% of what I will say, what I just said will make some sense. But if you just Google what are like rotator cable, you'll see that you'll see the 
a thickening of those uh, of that CH ligament, you'll see that, that those thickened fibers and how they're oriented um, perpendicular to the fibers of the supraspinatus and infraspinatus. And again, that helps transmit the forces against this whole rotator cuff complex. And you can actually see it uh, interoperatively with a scope. And I remember sitting in cases for a long period of time and my attendants were like, oh, that's the rotator cuff cable. I'm like, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, I see that. Of course, I had no idea what they were talking about. But um, yeah. so just, just just know if this is you or if this was you this week and, and you're in the arthroscopy and, and somebody said this is a cable and you just nod your head, you're not the only one. I did not know what it was for a very long time. So uh, if you Google up the uh, rotator cable as well as the rotator crescent, the pictures will make a little bit more sense. Now, uh, moving yeah, forward. You know, um, yeah, go ahead. Previously, like uh, I've had several attendings talk about the rotator cable as like a, it functions like a suspension bridge. Uh, yeah to the rotator cuff and um, then they assumed that I knew the uh, mechanical engineering behind a suspension bridge. <laughs> um, but basically what it, what they're getting at and after I looked at it for a while and kind of convinced myself that I somewhat know what they're talking about is, is a suspension bridge. If you look at it, it's like the golden gate bridge. You have uh, obviously the bridge part where the cars were drive, drive across, but then you have, two large towers that are near the ends with a large cable that runs in a u-shaped pattern between those and and what that does is the the two towers act as the two attachment sites of the rotator cable on the humeral head and then the cable itself acts as that u-shaped uh cable that you'll see on the golden gate bridge and when you put pressure on the two attachment sites it transmits forces along the entire cable so it's able to uh better uh transmit the forces across a greater surface area because the cable itself is longer than if it were just straight across from point to point it just because the the circumference is going to be greater than the diameter at that point and i know that i probably just made people even more confused with trying to describe <laughs> it that way but um i again no. if you if you look it up it, it does kind of intuitively make sense that if you're increasing the surface area of the pole then you're going to increase the the strength of that pole with the rotator cuff no i i was staring at i googled while you're talking and have been staring at a picture of the golden gate bridge as you explained that and it made perfect sense so uh, if that may, may be what you need to do, if you're listening to this, go and Google the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, and you'll kind of see what Spencer's talking about here. But no, I think that was a good description of it. Uh, way better than what I try to say. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, now moving forward. So say, for example, you know, we uh, one of the big parts of being a clinician is being able to take a, you know, a good history and do a good physical exam finding. We'll talk about a physical exam in a bit. But when we're taking a history and, you know, we're in a shoulder clinic and you're in a sports clinic and the patient has a complaint of some shoulder pain, what are some important things to look at and consider and some, um, some common, common um, uh, presentations of different things? Well, luckily, the, the shoulder tends to act in certain ways depending on a patient's age. Uh, which is nice that you find 
uh, I mean, similar to like pathology and tumors, you find certain tumors in a certain age group and not others. You find certain shoulder pathologies in a certain age group than others. So in the younger, more active uh, age group, you're going to find different diagnoses. And so obviously you're looking at the patient's age, you're looking at their chief complaint. Is it a complaint of pain? Is it a complaint of instability? Is it a complaint of weakness? Um, in these younger patients, we're looking at more of the uh, instability and maybe a chromioclavicular injuries, uh, whereas old, older patients, we're looking more for rotator cuff tears, arthritis, and fractures. Um, the uh, night pain uh, can be attributed to a rotator cuff tear or a tumor. Don't forget about the tumors. Oh, yeah. Uh, hey, uh, let's see here. Um, if they're, uh, uh, let's say, um, they're an active swimmer who uh, complains that they feel like their shoulders coming out of place uh, every time they reach their arm up and out of the water, then we're looking more for like a multi-directional instability. Um, and then those who say that every time they reach their arm, either in a throwing position or uh, kind of that abducted external rotation position to reach overhead, then you're thinking more of an instability type case. So again, it's, uh, this isn't giving away any answers on an exam, but it's more for exam and test taking tactics that looking at the patient's age and complaint in the question stem can lead you towards some diagnoses rather than others. Like they're not going to give you a 25 year old with pain and then tell you he has uh, rotator cuff arthropathy because that really doesn't happen in that age group. But maybe a 75-year-old who has decreased motion and pain, that may be your diagnosis. Um, yeah. so, so pay attention to the, to the question stem and then obviously pay attention to the patients while they're in clinic because uh, obviously they're, they're the important ones in clinic and, and making sure that we're coming to the right uh, diagnosis and treatment for them. So um, what are what are some things to really pay attention to on inspection, uh, physical exam for uh, shoulder injuries? Yeah, so things to be on note for, even when you're just looking, this is before you start to do any range of motion or any special test. Um, but when you're looking at the patient, I think it, historically, I would say you want to evaluate the patient with their shirt off or they have some type of covering so you can evaluate both sides. So one thing you want to look at is atrophy or is there any atrophy of the supraspinatus or infraspinatus fossa? If you're looking from the back, um, uh, that may clue you into something versus if you're looking from the front, are there any obvious deformities? Is that axillary fold in place or is, does it seem like there's some you know, asymmetry on both sides that could possibly clue you into a pec major uh, pec major rupture if there's any ecchymosis? Is there uh, atrophy of the deltoid? You know, is there, is there axillary nerve working? Um, you know, so these are all things that you can just kind of note just from looking at the patient. If you're, again, if you're looking at it from the back, you can see, do they have a prominent medial scapular border that may clue you into or something like, you know, long thoracic nerve palsy or something, something of that, that sense. Uh, are there any prior surgical scars? So do they have a couple poke holes that show that they had a previous arthroscopy in the past? Do they have a big incision of the anterior aspect of their shoulder? It's maybe a previous delta pec approach. These are all uh, things to, to note 
and can kind of include you in and uh, information that you can gather within the first couple of seconds just from seeing the patient before you even uh, take a look at them. And then you can also see how are they, uh, what is their position like? Are their shoulders protracted? Are they retracted? Are they in neutral? Um, so these are all things and, and, and things you can notice uh, right away as soon as you walk into a room. So you definitely want to make sure that you're paying attention in that uh, in that sense. Uh, now, moving forward to some of these uh, special tests or these physical exam maneuvers, because I've noticed that sometimes when doing questions, they'll they'll clue you in towards what's positive and what's negative, and they'll try to lead you down a path of what this patient's pathology may be. And then also in real life, these are some of the same, you know, physical exam tests and that we can perform when we're trying to figure out what's the cause of this patient's shoulder pain, because there can be many causes of shoulder pain, as we all know. So what are some of the physical exam tests for impingement and then how are they performed? Yeah, uh, unfortunately the question stems will really just state like a near test was positive or a Hawkins test was positive. And unless you know that these are tests for impingement, it really doesn't help you much. So um, one of the few times in orthopedics where I think it's important to know the uh, actual name of the test, it, it will help you out. So like a near impingement sign is pain with forward flexion in the scapular plane at greater than 90 degrees. And the scapular plane is uh, kind of 30 degrees anterior from uh, straight abducted. So because of how the scapula sits on the posterior um, uh chest uh or on the on the posterior aspect of the ribs uh, it's going to be 30 degrees uh anterior from straight out lateral uh the impingement uh test is going to be a decrease in pain and range of motion at greater than 90 degrees after you do a subacromial injection so patients complaining of shoulder pain that may radiate down into the uh, uh deltoid insertion um, you're thinking that they have impingement, you inject them, uh, come back into the room 10 minutes later. And if you then do some of these impingement tests and they are less symptomatic after you've injected lidocaine, uh, then they have a positive impingement test. And then the, another test is the Hawkins test. And that's pain with um, what you do is you bring the arm 90 degrees of forward flexion straight out in front, and then you uh, internally rotate the arm and uh, that can, as you do that, it brings the greater tuberosity of the humerus into closer proximity to the uh, undersurface of the acromion. And if there's any bursal inflammation or bursal sided rotator cuff tears, you can get an impingement of that area with the internal rotation uh, of that uh, humerus. And then um, uh, moving from impingement into uh, supraspinatus tears, what are some of the physical exam findings with the supraspinatus tear? Yeah, so looking at supraspinatus, and I like how we kind of uh, divvied this up into these different muscles and tendons and, and you know, these tests for these different tendons. But one of the big things is Job's test, or some people call it an empty can test. And what you do is you have them forward flex and for those that most most people listening to this know what forward flex mean, but forward flex really just means you just raise your arm straight up and forward in, in front of you. Um, so a Job's test is when you have the patient forward flex in the 
scapular plane, just like you're talking about. So it's kind of 30 degrees um, uh, from horizontal. So you have them um, uh, forward flex to 90 degrees, thumbs down, and then you resist them. So you push, you try to push down their arms. And if they have pain or weakness, that's a positive Job's test for this, which is testing the supraspinatus tendon. Uh, another uh, exam finding you can do is um, sometimes you can you can passively uh, you can passively raise the patient's arm all the way up and in the plane of the scapula. So you forward flex it all the way up and then you let go of their hand. And if they're unable to, to hold their arm up or they, their arm kind of drops down in pain, this can uh, that's called a positive drop arm test. So if that's positive, that can be you know kind of indicative of a, a massive tear or, you know, you have something going on with your supraspinatus. Uh, this other test is not uh, is not tested as much, but I feel like my uh, program chairman uh, is, is, is just somehow listening on this. And if I fail to state this test, I feel like somehow he will uh, he will find me and, and <laughs> tell me that I need to mention it, uh, uh, which is uh, the Whipple test. Our, our program um, chair is, is, is Dr. Buddy Savoy. And uh, so he, he, he knows a lot about the shoulder. For, and so this is a Whipple test. And so what the Whipple test is, is you forward flex their arm, you adduct it, and you have them bring their thumbs down. And they resist, uh, you try to push down their arm. And so they try to resist that. And so they have, if they have pain and weakness with that, that's also another positive test, uh, a Whipple test. Another thing that he'll say, or, you know, that, that is out there that may be a little bit further beyond this talk is that if they have pain and weakness when you do that. So again, you know, the arm is forward flex, adducted, thumbs down, and you push down and they're having pain and weakness. He'll say you can stabilize the scapula. So you put one hand and support the medial board of the scapula. And if they have, uh, and if they're strong or, you know, they don't have any weakness or pain with, uh, with resistance from that test, then that may actually kind of clue you into something maybe going on with actual scapula. So you may have some, you know, some, something going on with your scapula thoracic mm. joint. So that's kind of you stabilize your scapula and repeat the test. That way, you know, if it's coming from the uh, supraspinatus itself, or it may be another uh, condition, you know, something else going on with the scapula, because once you've, uh, once you've stabilized their scapula, uh, their strength is normal. So that's how you, that's another, that may be a little more advanced, but that's kind of how you can differentiate between, is it just, a, just, just the supraspinatus or is, do they have something else going on with the scapula? So uh, moving forward, what are some physical exam tests for infraspinatus tears? I would say the most uh, seen or discussed one is probably the external rotation lag sign. So what you're doing is you're placing, uh, and it's good to do this on both sides so that you're not uh, uh, just looking at one side and making your diagnosis off of that and not comparing it to their normal, but it's called the external rotation lag. And, and what you're doing is um, you're bringing both of their arms, uh, which are adducted, and the elbows flexed at 90 degrees, and you bring both of them out uh, passively uh, as far externally rotated as they can go. And then you ask them to hold their arms in that position. And on uh, infraspinatus tear, you'll see that they, the patient will be unable to hold an external rotation uh, with their arm adducted to the side but their normal side, they'll be able to hold it externally rotated. Um, you can also see weakness with resisted external rotation with the arm adducted. 
the the problem with that test is uh, they can compensate for some of that external rotation weakness with the posterior deltoid. Uh, so it's not as sensitive or specific as the external rotation lag sign. Um, and then the last of the four uh, rotator cuff muscles, uh, what are some uh, physical exam uh, tests you can do for Terry's minor? And so what this is, is you have the, their arm abducted and um, you have their arm abducted and you have them externally rotate their arm. So their arms abducted and their elbows flexed to 90 degrees and you have, and you resist them externally rotating their arm. And if they have weakness or pain with that, that can kind of clue you in towards, uh, you know, Terry's minors tears. And how I'd like to kind of do these is how you describe with the lag sign is you just test them both, test both arms out at the same time. So if you have put both their arms and you have them abducted and flex their elbows and tell them, um, and tell them and try to resist, you know, your external rotation. That way you can test and you can see if the other side is weaker compared to that side. So yeah, I kind of try to test both shoulders at the same time. That way you can kind of tell. Um, but continuing on, uh, we have talked about supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor. Uh, one more remains. Uh, order some physical exam test for subscapularis tears. Uh, yeah, I forgot about the subscap. I said that teres minor was the last of the uh, muscles, but uh, subscap. The <laughs> yeah, this is a front one. So uh, it was hiding. Exactly. <laughs> Good cover. Uh, <laughs> The uh, subscap, um, so you have the liftoff test, which uh, you have the patient go to um, external rotation with their arm uh, behind their lumbar spine. And you ask them to simply just lift their, the back of their hand off of their uh, lumbar spine. And if they are unable to do that, that results in a inability to you further internally rotate the arm and you're su you suspect a subscap uh, tear. There's also the belly press test, uh, which um, is actually a little bit more uh, complex than what I initially thought. I thought you just had them put their hand on their stomach and uh, you try and uh, pull their uh, arm off their stomach, but you have to make sure that as they put their hand on their stomach, that their hand, wrist, and elbow are all in the same line. Uh, because if you let their elbow drift posteriorly, as you pull their hand off their stomach, they'll compensate with their latissimus and their posterior deltoid. So uh, they won't be able to do that if the hand, wrist, and elbow are all in the same line. It'll isolate the subscap as you try and pull their hand off of their stomach. Um, and then the bear hug, which is weakness with resisted uh, external rotation while the hand is on the opposite shoulder and the elbow is uh, anterior to the sternum. So like right in front of the sternum, if they're unable uh, to keep their hand on their shoulder as you try and pull their hand off, uh, uh, that's a subscap weakness or a subscap tear. Um, and uh, that completes the rotator cuff finally. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a digital bank built for doctors by doctors. From medical student to attending, Panacea offers free checking and loan options just for physicians, including their PRN personal loan that gives you up to 75000 at an interest rate less than half of a credit card. 
Panacea Financial can also refinance your medical school debt with no maximums or help with commercial needs such as practice or surgery center buy-ins. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how you can join the physicians nationwide who expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of the Primus member FDIC. And please, if you go, mention it, nailed it, ortho, and how did you hear about us section. Now, I hope you enjoyed this episode, which is actually the correct episode for uh, sports. And we will continue on with our OITE review. So uh, without further ado, please hit that subscribe button and uh, I'll see you next time.